Have you heard of preppers? First time I heard the term was in seminary. A prepper is a person who believes a catastrophic event or disaster or emergency is likely to occur in the future and makes active preparation for it, typically by stockpiling food, ammunition, and other supplies. I became aware of preppers because a couple at our church was pretty positive towards this. But what I soon found out was that this is actually a cultural phenomenon. There are TV shows about preppers. And here's what I noticed. Becoming a prepper impacts your entire life. Being a prepper is not just having extra food and medical supplies handy. Being a prepper is embracing a mindset that says, everything about life now needs to change in preparation for insert event. Invest your money now in what's going to make you ready then. Invest your time now in what's going to make you ready then. Hold loosely to life now because it's all about to change then. Now, why in the world am I talking about preppers? I don't have intel on an upcoming zombie apocalypse. (laughs) Frankly, I'm talking about it because I am shocked at the zeal and diligence that preppers put in in view of some possible unknown event in the future in comparison to the lack of zeal and lack of diligence that so many Christians put in in view of the certain return of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you a question. Are you prepared for the return of Christ? And what does it look like to be prepared? Is it as simple as believing in God? Being baptized? Being morally upright? Or is it more? How do you know if you're ready? What should you do to be ready? And what happens if you're not ready? To answer these questions, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Let's look at the ministry of John the Baptist. Let's look at the ministry of John the Baptist because this is exactly what he came to do, to make people ready. Would you read verses 1 through 4 with me of Matthew chapter 3? Matthew 3, verses 1 through 4. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is he, for this is he who was spoken of by the, the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now in order for you to understand Matthew 3, you need to remember how the Old Testament ended. Malachi 4, we were just there last week, 
Malachi 4 says this, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God announced through Malachi that he would send Elijah before the day of the Lord. Now, after Malachi, 400 years pass, and then John the Baptist comes on the scene. John the Baptist is Elijah who was promised. And we know that for two reasons. Number one, Jesus himself said so in Matthew 11. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we know it because Jesus said it, and we also know it because John's rough dress and his rough diet mentioned there in verse 4 is exactly the same as Elijah's in 2 Kings 1.8. Those familiar with the Old Testament would have read verse 4 and just immediately thought, oh, John's like Elijah. So this is the promised Elijah. And what does he come to do? Look at verse 3 again. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John has come to prepare the way of the Lord and to make his path straight. Now, this deserves just a little explanation, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's after Psalms and Proverbs, but it's before Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. And turn your eyes... Turn your eyes to verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. By the way, I I can't read this without hearing it sung in Handel's Messiah. If you haven't heard it, it's incredible. But what is this? It's a promise that the Lord himself, Yahweh, God, he is going to come and visit his people. And it calls for preparation to be made in view of his appearing. Now, In the ancient Near East, when a king would visit an outpost of his kingdom, he would send a representative ahead of time to prepare roads so that he could ride into the city with with all his entourage and with all his glory, and he could ride in unobstructed. And so a representative would go ahead of time and and make sure that, that roads are cleared and straightened and leveled. And this is being quoted in view of John the Baptist. He is the representative sent ahead of the Lord's coming, and his charge is to prepare the way. Now, I want to note one thing and then ask one question. 
Note this. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. But in Isaiah, the representative is preparing the way for God himself. What are we to make of that? We're to make of it that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is fully divine. He is fully divine and fully man. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, 23. Jesus' coming is God's coming. And that leads me to my question. What kind of preparation needs to be made? Is it, is it roads that need to be made ready? No, it's hearts that need to be made ready. Turn back to Matthew 3 if you aren't already there. The preparation needed to receive Jesus is summed up by one word, repent. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Repentance is what is needed in order to be ready for the appearance of the king. Well, if repentance is what is needed, then we need to understand repentance. And so what is it? It consists of at least three things. One, confession of sin. We read in verse 6 that those baptized by John confess their sins. Throughout Scripture, God calls His people to take responsibility for their sins by confessing them. Psalm 32, 5, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But, Confession alone is actually useless. Throughout Scripture, we also see examples of those who confessed their sin, but they went no further. In Exodus 9, Pharaoh confessed his sin against the Lord. In Joshua 7, Achan confessed his sin. In 1 Samuel 15, an insincere Saul confessed his sin. These examples teach us that, that there's more to repentance than confession. Repentance must also include, and this is number two, sorrow over sin. There must be a deep realization in your heart that you have sinned against God. It's the kind of sorrow you see in Psalm 51. David, broken over his sin, cries out to God and saying, Against you and you only have I sinned. This is not mere sorrow over getting caught. This is not mere sorrow over consequences. This is realization that you have offended God. But sorrow alone, that too is useless. Later in Matthew, a rich young man will walk away from Jesus tremendously sorrowful, but not repentant, because he didn't want to part with his possessions. 
This leads to the third part of repentance. It must include turning from sin. Real repentance is more than confession. It is more than sorrow. It is turning. It is turning from sin and turning toward God in faith and living differently as a result. I think texts like Joshua 24 get at it so nicely. He says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is a real break called for in repentance. A break of allegiance to sin and self and a commitment to God and His ways. It's a renunciation of sin and an embrace of God's word and God's ways. That, friends, is repentance. Now as we continue in the text, we'll see two groups. Those who repent and those who don't. Let's look at John's baptism, beginning in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were all baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John is called the Baptist, not because he's a Baptist as opposed to a Presbyterian, although he would be a Baptist, (laughs) but because he's baptizing. Because he's a baptizer. And although this isn't Christian baptism as we understand it, the similarities are many. It was probably a once-only rite. It was related to the confession and forsaking of sin. And there's cleansing and newness pictured in it. Those coming to John were saying much the same thing that Christians say after we've trusted in Christ and we come to him for baptism. I'm turning from my sin. I'm trusting in the Lord. And I'm committing myself to a new way of life as the purified people of God. That's what they were saying. And that's a lot like what we say. And praise the Lord. Many genuinely responded to John's message. But there were others who did not. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, not to be baptized, but to observe, to keep an eye on things, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abra- or for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We have so much we can learn here. 
First of all, we learn that repentance is definitely shown by a change of life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If someone thinks they've repented, their life doesn't change. That person hasn't repented. Second of all, we learn that repentance calls you to renounce any dependence upon yourself to be right with God. Here's the deal with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They thought they were good with God. You know why? Two reasons. Number one, they scrupulously obeyed the law. If you were to follow them around for a week, you wouldn't be able to find any outward action you could condemn. And they trusted in that. In one of Jesus' parables, he said they, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous, end quote. And so they didn't think they needed to repent. This call to repentance didn't make any sense to them because they obeyed, so they thought. They were the good guys, so they thought. And it also didn't make sense because they trusted in their Abrahamic lineage. They thought this, to descend from Abraham is to be God's people. What's to repent of, man? We're already God's people. But here's the deal. True sons of Abraham are those who share Abraham's faith, not his genes. These guys are trusting in their physical descent. And they need to be imitating Abraham's faith. And here's this precious promise in verse 9. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This points us to the fact that salvation, the salvation that Jesus will accomplish is open to all who repent. Whoever, Jew or Gentile, whoever turns from his sins and trusts in Christ will become God's people, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Matthew sprinkles this sweet truth throughout his gospel. In chapter 8, after a Roman centurion A Roman centurion believes in him. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, Gentiles, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the physical descendants of Abraham, will be thrown into outer darkness. You see... Those who thought they were going to be in in Jesus' day, based on their morality or based on their lineage, those who thought they were going to be in, they're out. But everyone, everyone who repents will be in. This is weighty and wonderful. And this is why John has such harsh words for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because they're deceived. 
They're lost in their pride and self-righteousness and foolish confidence, thinking that all is well between them and God, thinking they're okay. They're actually in the worst position possible. If they don't repent, judgment awaits. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's judgment. Hell. And this same danger exists today in spades. I find that the hardest people to free from spiritual danger are those who think you're not in danger. Those who hear a call to repent and think, I don't really see how this applies to me. Those who think that all is well because you go to church, because you were baptized at some point, because you were raised in a Christian home, because you take the Lord's Supper, Because you believe the Bible and believe in God and obey the Ten Commandments mostly and live a moral life mostly. Please be clear, the Pharisees and Sadducees were outwardly aligned with God's people. If they were alive today, they would be sitting here among us. But they hadn't really repented. Their outward lives were clean, but their hearts were unclean. Is that you? And it's only Jesus who can really clean the heart. That's why John is preaching the way he's preaching. He isn't able to clean the heart. His work is preparatory, making people ready to actually have their heart cleansed by the only one who can do it. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. What will he do? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let's take a minute to understand that. First of all, Jesus coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit is not a special baptism for a few select Christians that some associate it with speaking in tongues. Rather, baptism with the Spirit refers to Jesus' transforming work of putting His Spirit in you and changing your heart from the inside out. And it happens to all Christians. And it happens to all Christians at the moment of conversion. The Old Testament prophesied about a work of God that would come one day. Jeremiah tells us that God's law will be written on the heart of his people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Ezekiel speaks about God giving his people a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26. Joel speaks of a day wherein God will pour out His Spirit on all His people. Joel 28, 29. All of this, friends, is fulfilled in Jesus. He brings these promises and He puts His transforming Spirit into the heart of all who trust in Him. 
This is the baptism of the Spirit. And it is precious. It is also purifying. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What that really means is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will purify you. There's a debate among scholars whether fire here refers to judgment or purification. I believe it's purification because John's addressing here those he's actually baptizing who are repenting and because fire often has a purifying sense in Scripture. Remember Malachi. He, speaking of Jesus, is like what? A refiner's fire. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them. Malachi 3, 2 and 3. And so what this is saying, honestly, isn't all that complicated. John knows that he can't change hearts. But John knows the one coming after him can. And so he wants his hearers ready to receive him because receiving him means receiving life. But if that's the case, what does rejecting him mean? Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is an analogy from farming, old school farming. Winnowing may not be very familiar to us, but it refers to this process of separating wheat from chaff. So a farmer would take a winnowing fork and he would toss both in the air, And the grain, which is heavier, would fall back on the floor. The chaff would blow to the side. And the farmer would keep the grain. And then he would sweep the chaff together, throw it in the fire. Those who receive Jesus are the grain. He will gather you up into his barn and keep you. And those who reject Jesus are the chaff. Your end is judgment. Unquenchable fire. That's a frightful picture. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is everything so focused on Jesus? How is it that He is the one who is able to accomplish this great salvation for all who receive Him. It's because He's the one who's going to fulfill all righteousness. Would you turn your eyes back to verse 13 with me? Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented Him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, first of all, this is Jesus' entrance into public ministry right here. Matthew chapter 1 narrated his genealogy and his birth. Matthew 2 narrates his early life. This is his entrance. It's his entrance into public life. He's coming to John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, 
wanting to be baptized, surely you can understand why John is a bit hesitant. Jesus has no need of repentance. This doesn't seem right. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. What does Jesus say? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. I wish I could spend all day on this. I'm just going to scratch the surface. What does that little phrase mean? To fulfill all righteousness, which is what caused John to consent and to baptize Jesus. What does it mean? Well, it means at least two things. Number one, Jesus has come to identify with sinners. According to Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus came to be numbered with the transgressors. Now, Jesus himself has no sin. He never sinned. Hebrews 4, 15. Yet here he undergoes a baptism of repentance. Why? To show that he has come to step into our shoes, to identify with us, to identify with sinners. He is not a sinner. Be clear. But he undergoes here what a sinner does undergo because he's identifying with us. And why is he identifying with us? This leads to the second thing. Jesus has come not only to identify with sinners, he has come to save sinners. And this is a picture of how he will accomplish our salvation. Baptism pictures death and life. Burial and resurrection. And here at the beginning of Christ's ministry, we get a picture of the end of Christ's ministry. That is, his baptism here pictures his future death and resurrection by which he will accomplish our salvation. He came, friends, not just to identify with us. He came to die for us. He came to step into our shoes to take the penalty of the law of God in our place. This is what Paul meant when he said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 You see, for all who receive him, Jesus is your substitute in every way. He has come to fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God in your place. And He has come to fulfill all righteousness by taking the penalty of the law in your place. This is exactly what I mean when I say what I say so often that Jesus came to live the life you should have lived and die the death you deserve to die. This is all pictured right here. Let me be baptized by you, John. Let me do this. This is what I've come to do. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
This is incredible. Well, to make sure you don't miss how important this is, look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We have a Trinitarian confession at this glorious moment here. As Jesus, the Son, rises from the water, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then the Father speaks and pronounces his pleasure in his Son. What do we celebrate at Christmas? Christ. Christ who came, lived, died, rose, and Christ who will come again. And what will he do when he comes again? He will gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so my question for you is, are you ready for that day? Are you ready? And the only way to be ready is to heed the message of this text, to repent. Some of you may need to repent for the first time. And by that, please don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that you've never recognized a sin in your life and turned from it. I mean that you've never really owned the fact that you're a rebel, that you're bound for hell. And the only way to be saved is through the salvation that Christ offers. I recognize that's kind of a tough sell. I know that. Because it requires you to acknowledge that you are fundamentally not good. You see, we all want to put ourselves in the good guy category. We want to put ourselves in the category that thinks of our sins as relatively small and others' sins as bigger. But the reality is every sin is damning because every sin is sin against a perfectly holy God. So you, you need to see yourself for who you really are. One who's broken God's law, time without number. A sinner whose only hope is Jesus. He is the one who obeyed God's law in the place of sinners, took the penalty of God's law in the place of sinners, and offers salvation to all who come to him by faith. And so what should you do? Repent. Confess your sin. Trust in Christ to forgive you of your sin and then leave your sin. This is what it means to become a Christian. To repent and believe. Friends, it's fundamentally very simple. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to be a good person. All you need to do is actually know that you need a Savior. All you need to do is hear the call to repent and think, that's me. I need a Savior. And then come to Him. 
Come to him by faith and be washed in his blood. Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He will take your heart and make you new. He will begin to purify you from the inside out. But now some of you, some of you would say that you've done this. But your life doesn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Beware of thinking like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that your standing with God is secure based on the wrong things. Some of you think that you're okay with God because you've been baptized. And some of you were taught to believe that. Roman Catholic theology teaches that baptism removes sin. It doesn't. That's a lie and a false gospel. I don't say that to be critical. I say that because you need to know that. I don't know how many folks I've ministered to who think they're okay because they've been baptized. You're not okay. And according to the Bible, Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholic baptism is not baptism. Baptism is only for those who've turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. Some of you are trusting in a profession that you made years ago. Some of you are trusting in the fact that you come to church. Some of you are trusting in that you believe the Bible. Please hear me. The evidence of repentance is a transformed life. Love for God. Love for His people. Hatred for sin that results in fleeing from sin. Is that you? If it's not then you're not a Christian. Your faith is a form of faith that will not save. I think some of the scariest verses in the Bible are those spoken by Christ towards the end of Matthew 7. He tells us there will be those on that day, on the last day, who are shocked to find out that they are not His people. They genuinely think they belong to Him. And Jesus tells them, depart from me, I never knew you. I do not want you to be in that number. And so for that reason, today, I exhort you to repent and believe. Recognize that your faith is not saving faith, that you've been trusting in some form of works righteousness like these Pharisees and Sadducees. Recognize this for what it is. Own it and then come. Come to Jesus and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then to my brothers and sisters in Christ, what should you do? You should live continuing to repent and believe. You should live every day of your life turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. Not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. Martin Luther's very first thesis of his 95 theses that he nailed to the castle door in the church in Wittenberg, he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This turning, brothers and sisters, this turning from sin, turning from self, turning from finding our home in the world, this turning happens every day. 
And this trusting, trusting in Christ to forgive us, trusting in Christ to transform us, trusting in Christ to purify us, this trusting happens every day. We turn and we trust every day. And as a result, the life of the Christian should look totally different from the world around you. A life that's about as different as a prepper's life from a normal person. I'll be straight. I think preppers are a little off. And I think the world should think you're a little off too. You should have a different way about you. Jonathan Edwards resolved, quote, never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life, end quote. Further, he resolved, quote, never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if I expect that it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump, end quote. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is returning. We know not when, but in view of his coming, be zealous to be waiting for him, busy for him, longing for him, loving him, working for him, living for him. Everything now should be done in view of then. A life lived like that will be a life ready to receive His appearing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us ready. Make us ready, Father, for the most significant event which is more certain than death and taxes, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he has fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf and it is our duty to turn from our sin and trust in him and when we do and as we do, we are ready. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.